Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris. This is Frank. And this week, we are going to be starting our 10-month-long journey into the genre of horror B-movies. Um, we are going to be starting with the year 1980. <clears throat> uh, we originally came up with this list idea uh, because I had offered Frank up the idea of doing the top five horror B-movies of the 1980s in general, and he came back with, um, over text, I could do this list for every single year of the decade, um, and I uh, reluctantly um, accepted um, <clears throat> the challenge. Um, I might be completely sick of these movies by the time we're done with this list. It's very possible. Uh, not to say I like some of these movies, but it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, this, this, it's a lot of a lot of B movies. Um, I'm excited personally. So, for viewers that might not be like you know too up on like the genre, or, like you know, or like the culture behind horror movies and stuff like that, can you like do a couple things in terms of defining like just generally what B movies are, and then kind of talk about the place of like the glut of B movies in the horror genre, especially around this time period? So, to me, a B movie from the '80s, like in in terms of anything like horror, action, whatever, is a movie that would not have necessarily been the A-list showing in a theater. So it wouldn't be... Like, if you had a twin in 1982, your largest auditorium probably would not play any of these movies. But this might be something that in your smaller auditorium or in, like, a second-run theater or a grindhouse theater, this is something that would play. Um, so there's certain movies that I consider horror from the 80s, things like Gremlins, um, which would not end up on this list because that's a... A-list movie that played, you know, um, stuff like Ghostbusters. Not that Ghostbusters is necessarily horror, but similar yeah. things. If it was, like, released by a major theater or a major film company and backed by it. And even some of these movies kind of tread that line, but most of them were filmed with sort of, like, an independent spirit. Um, they're pretty rough. Some of them, they contain, like, I don't know. They're experimental in a lot of ways, like, in their approaches to psychology and whatever um or they're just goofy and and some gross of them, out and, some of them a shocking amount of violence for the time period i would think right yeah. um also depending on the company who released them like you know trauma is a big like low budget b movie distributor and the list over the next 10 months will contain like several trauma movies and um something that was filmed maybe independently and then sold to a major theater like i would still consider a b movie um Chris hates Troma a lot. So. I, I don't hate Troma. There are certain movies I actually like, but um, that that I, that certainly just gave me Paul's. Yeah, you probably wrote it on my right. face. We'll, um, we'll see how he feels when he's got to watch Surf Nazis Must Die mm. in like 1987 mm. or whatever. Yeah. I can't remember what year that movie is. You might get lucky there because that might be like 1990. But Yeah. yeah. Um, so just generally they're, they tend to be exploitation movies, even if they contain something greater than that. Um predominantly slasher movies or movies that involve like copious amounts of violence um ghost story is another example uh with fred astaire and i can't remember who else is in it melvin douglas um that that movie is a horror movie that's like an a-list horror movie mm. you know so that wouldn't count on the list right um What's your history with these movies, like being a pretty big horror guy? I mean, <clears throat> did you start watching these at a pretty young age, or was it a little bit later? Or? Yeah, I mean, I saw... One of the movies on this list I saw when I was, like, five years old. So, mm. it was probably my first, like, introduction to it. Yeah. Um, and I grew up in the 1980s, so going to video stores when you would be able to rent, like, one or two movies a weekend. Right. 
Um, I always gravitated towards horror, so I've, I watched a lot of these movies, like, within a few years of them being released, either, like, in the theater or on VHS, um, and I, you know, I loved, I loved them. Um, every movie on this list, with the exception of one, is something that I saw, like, in my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, so there's a lot of, like, nostalgia for them. Um, I think most of them, to an extent, like, hold up i mean there's a lot of stuff in the 80s that doesn't hold up at all when you watch it it's just kind of like sometimes tedious and sometimes embarrassing um you can definitely tell how social social mores have changed in the past like 30 some years watching these movies especially with the way that like they treat women but on the other hand like there's a lot of really progressive like ideology that come out of these movies because the directors tend to be pretty liberal like artsy people who just are making like schlock and so they have these ideas of like female empowerment and, and that's not true everywhere but some of them it is in one of the, yeah in one of these movies definitely and another one i two would say them, i would say okay, two of the movies on maybe. this list are very strongly about female one, empowerment. one of them i might argue is the exact opposite like but um <clears throat> maybe i don't yeah. i don't know which one you're talking about yeah, but okay. you might be right um but yeah so i just i I like the aesthetic of them. I like the griminess of like the way that 80s movies are filmed. Um, a lot of this stuff is when movies were still being filmed on, like, I mean, the 80s, you know, movies were still being made on film like it was before the, <clears throat> you know, digital video filming. When yeah. I kind of feel like that's the deterioration of the low-budget horror movie when everything looks like somebody made it in their mm -hmm. living room or whatever. Um, but this stuff, there still is, like, a budget to it. There still is passion. You know, you've got... Um, a lot of people like Rick Baker and Tom Savini involved in these movies that are like pouring a lot of effort into the visual effects, which kind of enhances the believability and like the overall, you know, feel of the movies. So I don't know. It's just, it's, um, I'm, I mean, we've said it like a dozen times, my favorite genre of film and between this and the seventies, my favorite decade in terms of like the quality of the films. Mm -hmm. Or just my enjoyment of it, maybe not the quality so much. Yeah. This is something I've been thinking about this past week, and I wasn't going to say anything about it, but... Do you do you rate these movies on a curve in any way? I don't compare them to anything else, if that's what you're asking. Okay. So it's like, I mean... Not that we use star systems or number systems right. ever like when we talk about movies, but it's like... Um, like, if, if something, like, you know, was a four-star movie to you, like, let's, you know, let's take anything. Let's take Chinatown, just for example. Sure. Like, you know, um, and it's, like, like, where does, where do, like, movies like this compare when it comes to, like... I mean, it's apples and oranges. Like, okay. So, here's, here's that's, actually... That's, that's what I'm asking. Here's a really good example. Right. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Virgin Spring. Mm -hmm. Um, Ingmar Bergman movie. Yeah. Max von Sydow. Mm -hmm. Um... We're going on a four-star scale? Is that sure. what it is? Yeah. So, one of the strongest four-star movies, in my opinion, mm -hmm. that I've ever seen. Last House on the Left is an adaptation of The Virgin Spring and is probably a three-star movie to me in terms of a horror movie. Mm -hmm. But that's in relation to other movies in the same genre, like the Women in Peril revenge film movies. Mm -hmm. um, if you compared those two movies like side-by-side... Last House on the Left is like one and a half stars compared right. to Virgin Springs okay. four stars. So like you can't, you can't compare 
certain certain movies that are made, even though they're made with craft, like Wes Craven puts a lot of craft and love into Last House on the Left, and there's actually a lot of really good stuff in it. Mm-hmm. But Wes Craven is not, you know, Ingmar Bergman. Mm-hmm. Like they're two different directors, and Bergman is so much more talented, mm-hmm. and his films are so much more powerful. So you can't rate. You know, if I used, like, the classic director scale, every one of these movies would be, like, a one-star movie, two-star movie. And there's some, like, exceptions to that. Like, I would play something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, on within that pantheon of movies that I, like, legitimately love. And not to say that I don't legitimately love... Well, I don't legitimately love Last House on the Left, because I think it's, like, incredibly difficult to watch. But, Mm -hmm. like, the movies we're going to talk about, like, I really love these movies, but I would never tell you that one of them is a better movie than... Anything that Bergman or Fellini or Kurosawa. Like, those are, like, classic, powerful films. And these are just... And I wanted to bring it up because, you know, if I think it's... Even though I don't know if we actually verbalize this to each other, I think that was the idea when we started this of, like, breaking it down by genre. Right. It's because there's times where we might... If we started doing, like, the best horror movies of the 80s and we just kept it to that and just did it by decade, like, a lot of these movies wouldn't hit that list possibly. Probably like, not. You know, um, some might, but a lot of uh, Yeah, maybe. Not. But, like, <clears throat> I mean, when you, when you, when you like, posited that that was the list we were going to do, mm-hmm. I started going through the movies of the 80s, like, horror movies, and it was impossible. Like, yeah. there's no way that I could parse, you know, 10 years of... I mean, and honestly, the 1980s have the largest glut... <sighs> Maybe the largest glut of like true like modern horror, even though there's a lot in like the fifth, the forties and fifties, and then the sixties has like the black and white and coming into like the color like early horror. Then all the Hammer movies and whatever through like the seventies, but it really is like post Exorcist, Chainsaw, and Halloween that you just have like this flood of horror movies. That exists for like a decade until it kind of peters out in the early 90s. And that a lot of that is like the direct-to-video boom in the early 90s and kind of the fall of the movie theater, like before that revival of movie theaters of the Megaplex in like the mid-90s. So a lot of these movies that you would have been able to go see in a theater in like 1987, by like 1992, like they're just relegated to like a VHS box. So this really is the last decade where these movies were made you know, by filmmakers on film to be shown, like to be exhibited on like a, a like a large screen. And I think there's something to be said for like the artistry and quality. But again, like it's not something you can compare to okay. anything really. Right. I just wanted to clear that up just so. Yeah. I, I, I always prefer mm-hmm. to separate. Just so people don't think like, you know, yeah, like Last House on the Left is going to be compared to like, you know, Heat or no. um, Jackie it's, Brown. It's or, or, yeah, right. And I wouldn't compare Heat to virgin spring or anything like that you know i mean like it's different genres you got to take them in different ways there's different because every it's the intent of the filmmaker not only in the genre they place it in but in how they film the movie that matters to me Mm -hmm. so it's how you're supposed to view the movie and how the filmmaker's trying to connect with you and you know like again like going back to bergman like you watch wild strawberries and that's a very subtle understated but like powerful and like affecting movie and he's doing so many different things than somebody that's showing you someone get their throat slit in a horror movie. You know, they're still trying to reach you, but it's, like, completely divergent, you know, right. like, paths. So, I, even though it's, like, film, like, I don't think it's comparable yeah. in that sense. Okay. Ready to get started, then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
All right, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that they can contact us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. Uh, that's the number two and five, twoguys5movies at gmail.com. If they have any suggestions for different genres we might tackle, or, uh, you know, different um, types of movies, different decades of movies. Um, you can also um, contact us on our Facebook page um, at twoguys5movies. Uh so the first movie we have on the list, uh, number five this week for top five horror B movies of 1980, is the movie Mother's Day, directed by Charles Kaufman, starring Nancy Hendrickson, Deborah Luce, Tiana Pierce, Holden McGuire, Billy Ray McQuaid. What a great name for this movie! Um, and Rose Ross. Um, it has a 43%, or 42% from Rotten Tomatoes from critics, a 38% from the audience. Um, so did you want to go ahead and explain uh, the, the premise of this movie and what you like about it, Frank? The premise of the movie is there's two inbred brothers living out in the woods with their deranged mother. Um, they basically lure people, um, they kidnap them, and then they rape, torture, murder them, the brothers for the entertainment of the mother for no discernible reason other than the fact that she kind of likes it. Um, they live in fear of some thing defined as Queenie that lives out in the woods that nobody necessarily believes in except for the mother. Um, the meat of the movie is these three friends from college who get together every year as kind of like a bonding thing, like since they've graduated, have met up this year to go camping in these woods, in the woods that the family lives in. Um, the family kidnap them. They end up murdering one of the girls, and the other two girls turn into, like, commandos and basically murder the family. Um, it's a pretty, pretty simple premise. Um, I'm going to start my, like, talk about this movie by saying that in no way, shape, or form is this a good movie. Um, and there's honestly, like, a lot of probably bad things in it. But within its own, like, weird universe, I think it works really well. Um, I think I think the dilapidated, like, ramshackle nature of the house that feels lived in in a lot of ways, like, in the way that just the refuse and the grime and the way that's set up, like, you can tell they just found some abandoned house and, like, made it look like someone lived there. But in doing so, like, they really make it look like someone lived there. Um, I'll, I'll agree with that point. I think the... I thought it looked better than, like, say, even though I think it's far superior, far superior movie, um, I thought it looked better than The House in Texas Chainsaw. Sure. I, I mean, it's definitely... It, looked, it actually looked lived in. It looked like people actually lived in that place. Yeah. Right. And it makes it even more kind of terrifying because Agreed. it feels like... It, like, you watch, um, like, Hoarders or something like that, and it feels yeah. like something from Hoarders. Um... The performances are really weird. Like, I actually kind of... I, I think that the female lead performances are, like, okay. Like, moderately decent. Mm -hmm. I love the pseudo-Lenny and Squiggy aspect of um, the two brothers, Adley and Ike. Mm -hmm. Including the fact that Adley, who's, like, the disco-loving brother, mm -hmm. um, kind of looks like Squiggy in the sense of, like, his... Um, uh, what do they call it? Like, Crow's... Crow's Peak or Rave, whatever, like yeah, the yeah. hairstyle and his clothes I, I, and um, both hideous men. The mother is awful and shrill and I don't know. It's just, it, it's, it's an uncomfortable movie. It's part of the genre that I'm really kind of like, 
as I get older, moving away from having any affection for, which is like the rape, torture, revenge genre, yeah. which I feel is really difficult to watch. But I also think that like they don't really sexualize that stuff in this movie. Like it's not done where you're supposed to be. Like a lot of times when you watch a movie where there's like rape or torture and the Beastmaster movies are really bad for this. I Spit in Your Grave is kind of bad for this. They sort of eroticize the rape so yes. that you're supposed to be titillated. And in right. this, like, Go number on. one, there's very little actual nudity in the movie. And the rape scenes are really just kind of like, it really is just assault. Like, it's not ever, like, erotic or all. It's 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 filmed to remove you and make you see it for what it is. Right, so it's uncomfortable to watch. Like, they use, like, some slight bird's eye and stuff with some of those sequences, I think, in order to put you in the perspective of actually seeing the actual thing like play out in a way that like it makes you horrified for what's happening so it's one of those things where i agree with you like i don't think this filmmaker had any intent of having anybody be titillated by yeah and there there are things like i i still think something like not to get away from mother's day too much i still think that something like i spit on your grave has some merit um as a film because i think it's really well done but it's really difficult to like ever endorse movies like that anymore just because rape as a genre is like so like loathsome and like really like even as exploitation like why would you why would anyone want to watch that and be like oh you know this is entertaining like that's not an entertaining subject Mm -hmm. but you know this is a revenge movie the death of this girl is kind of framed by the fact that she's made some bad decisions with men in her life Mm -hmm. um it's really got like a strong female empowerment vibe to it because in most movies the majority of people die by the villains Mm -hmm. and then there's one person that survives. And in this one, both women come back as like strong and are able to fight off their attackers and escape. And they end up like killing the entire family. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's got some, I don't know. It's sort of progressive in that respect where you wouldn't really have like a female protagonist very much, even though that becomes more prevalent like throughout the eighties and especially with like the Friday the 13th, the nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, yeah, it's definitely one of the things I noted, like, in my notes, is that I was a little, having never seen this before, I was a little surprised by that kind of twist of them deciding to go back and seek revenge um, for their friend. And being effective at it, because sure, a lot of times right. those things happen right. and the, the killers are just too savvy or too, yeah. but I mean, these are idiots, and yeah. they end up, like, getting murdered right. um, in pretty gruesome ways, like, pouring yeah. the pouring the Drano in the guy's mouth and then stabbing him to death with yeah. the... Um, Electric knife is pretty pretty yeah. brutal. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite... Like, there's a lot of movies we'll talk about in the 80s that have, like, quote-unquote twist endings. This is one of my favorite twist endings of any movie because, like, it's so ridiculous. This and out is? of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, God. It was, like, one of the least favorite I things. love it. Like, like so... Spo- like, this is going to be spoiler because right, yeah. I don't think anyone's ever going to go, like, seek this movie out. Um, the mother tells the boys that they can never leave her because her sister who was kicked out of the house at a young age for being like this violent psychopath now roams the woods as this like almost mythical beast who's unkillable and who can chase down a wolf and rip out its throat and the sons never believe her they just think that she's trying to keep them close because she's lonely Mm -hmm. so the end of the movie like the sons are dead the mother is murdered the women are like okay like we need to get back to civilization you know we need to like get somebody back here to like take care of our like take the body of our friend Mm -hmm. 
and this like Sasquatch monster that's missing an ear, which is like like shown early on as being the sign of this queenie thing who's the sister, leaps over the bushes. It's obviously like a man in like a fursuit, yeah. like on a trampoline, like bouncing out of like a bush. And it freezes on yeah, that. Yeah, freeze frame on, yeah. On this, like, ridiculous monster mask face. But because it's so grainy and it's shot in such, like, a like a dim light. Because, you know, it's at nighttime when this is happening. Yeah. Like, I think it's really effective. And not, ex- like, so you didn't know it was going to happen. No. Like, you had no idea that it was coming. So what did you think when it happened? Was it just ridiculous to you? or? I th- yeah, I thought it was stupid. Like, I just, I, I, I didn't even, I didn't, like, I kind of chuckled, but, like... Like, because it's absurd, but, like, it's such a, I don't know. It was just such a nothing way to end that movie. Like, it was just a this weird, bizarre twist for twist's sake. And right, that, I, like, they, they, they won and they beat the enemy. Right. And now they're going to And you die. couldn't, and, and to me, it's like, you couldn't just end on them, like, victorious. Like, you know, like, because it was such an interesting premise to me that, so early in 1980, that they're doing that. Right. Um... You know, that the, these women get away and they actually, like, you know, end up, like, turning the tables on their captors and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was so interesting. It's like, now you're going to almost, like, undercut it with this stupid Sasquatch woman right. beast thing, like, I, jumping out of the woods. Like, I don't know what it is, but, like, I, I mean, I saw this movie when I was maybe, like, 13 or 14 yeah. years old. Like, I, I loved it. And I yeah. love, like, the still frame of, like, this ridiculous creature and... If, if you ever have the interest in just seeing that, like, Google, like, ending a Mother's Day right, 1980 yeah, yeah. and just watch, like, the minute clip or whatever sure. of it. Um, they even take care to, like, they, they show the creature from the side and they zoom in on the side of the head so you can see the ear is missing. Yeah, so you don't So there's it. no question about what's happening. Sure. And then I, it's really, it's like, it's like a luchador. Like, he bounds, mm-hmm. she bounds on the trampoline over this bush and it freezes in like a 1990 like x-men pose of like yeah. legs akimbo and uh, arms like uh-huh. up in the air and it's it's it's, yeah. it's pretty hilarious but i like teen it's like kind of like teen wolf like it is it looks like teen wolf like she's going to dunk yeah like uh-huh. queenie's going to dunk on him but right. um i i don't know it's just it's maybe it's the goofiness of it that i like but sure. i like it a lot yeah i'm a sucker for like the final twist in a horror movie where you're not ever clear if anyone is like has lived or like what the end result is, where it just freezes on something, there's movies we'll talk about like if, over the coming decade that have that same thing, and actually another one on this list that kind of has that same thing. But yeah, so I mean, look, is it like? I think it's a watchable movie. I think it's a fun movie. Um, this is truly like the biggest nostalgia pick on this list. Where I don't know that I can defend it as like a film at all, but I mean, I think it's yeah. fun. It's an early trauma movie. Um, Charlie Kaufman is the brother of Lloyd Kaufman, who's the president, owner, chief creator of the trauma series. Um, and you can see a lot of trauma influence and in like kind of almost the like, hey, we found this abandoned lot out in the woods. Right. Like, what can we build a story around yeah. this place with? And I was expecting to hate this for some reason. Yeah, and I was surprisingly half engaged throughout most of it like wondering like where it was going um i found the the stuff with the rape pretty tough to watch um i um i found like the the element like of them like i said already said i found the element of them like turning the tables interesting 
Um, I particularly found it interesting because it's so brutal in which the way that, like, the way they kill, like, these, you know, like, hillbillies, like, I found it inventive, odd, and gruesome. Yeah. Like, um, that, that, and I also true. thought this was the most, maybe out of all these movies, I thought it got the most visceral reaction out of me just in terms of the violence of it. Um, like, it actually felt like these things are actually kind of happening. Like, it's not just, like... The stereotypical hatchet in the head. Right. Somebody falls over. You know, I mean, blood like oozes out from special effects. Like, like it actually felt like this was real danger to some degree during those scenes. Like with real consequences. I mean, there's definitely no stunt actors in this movie, and you wonder right. how much of like the interaction between the actors was like truly like like physical. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got one of the most uncomfortable things to me ever, which is when. So there's one point where one of the women is being lowered in a sleeping bag out the window. And the other woman has to like delay yes. the lower. Oh, that's a real difficult because scene. Yeah. One of the brothers is walking underneath and mm-hmm. when she finally lets her down, there's huge grooves in her hand from where the rope is like Oh, it's worse than that. Like they show it while she's lowering or how the right. grooves it's are like starting. And yeah, like, so yeah. like these they're like her, her hand is being cut from like the heaviness of the rope like and just it, embedding into her it's, skin. It's it's realistic looking. Like it's it really is, uncomfortable absolutely. to watch, but yeah. It's small things like that where, like you said, like it's not like your standard yeah. horror, like deaths and horror violence. So it makes right. it a little more effective. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like I just, yeah. I, I really enjoy it. So one of the things I want to talk about too when we go over this list is how effective was this VHS box cover in terms of like making Frank watch the movie. <laughs> okay. Mother's Day is maybe top twenty VHS box cover of all time. Okay. So the box cover of Mother's Day is the mother. In a rocking chair, holding a like wrapped present that's partially open to expose a severed head, and the two brothers like it's all a painting standing behind her like looking proud, <clears throat> and it's just it's it's such a great box cover like you have no idea like really what the movie could be about and it's just it's really it's really cool like I love that cover art I really miss painted like movie art you yeah. know I mean I think that. I think the DVD has kind of ruined, or the Blu-ray or whatever, <clears throat> and definitely like digital, you know, streaming has yeah. kind of ruined this. But like, there was so much art artistry to like those box covers from like the eighties. Yeah. So, um, I just want to say I hate the mother in this thing. Yes, yeah, like the, the woman, the actress, the plays her. Like I hate the performance like completely. We're actually finding like the two hillbilly like sons pretty effective in what they do even though like they're not fantastic actors yeah. like in what they do they're pretty effective and i found the three girls to be pretty natural again not great actresses but at the same time pretty effective in the roles they're playing like they just seem like normal people um i thought all that was effective i hated the, the mother was such a like the uh, i think that's rose ross like um such a ham like in so many scenes and like right. she was like the thing that like really just like made me tune out when I did tune out of this movie and like kind of like uh, okay like uh, um which I found so weird because she's like the oldest you'd think she's more experienced actor out of the whole movie yes. right I don't I don't know anything about that woman yeah I don't either I mean but... she probably is the worst performance but yeah I think you're supposed to, I I think it's over the top because you're supposed to hate her so much yeah. like you're supposed to see her as the true evil for like corrupting her sons and making them like these monsters so yeah. Um, so Ebert's criticism of this, you can imagine. I can't, I saw, I, you know what? I can't imagine that Ebert reviewed it. Like I'm actually, it's, it's actually an interesting review because, um, he wasn't going to watch it. 
Like, he was, like, basically, like, had nothing to do. I think it was, I can't think it was a Tuesday afternoon, if I remember correctly. I didn't write that down. But um, uh, he had nothing to do, and this was showing, and he went in. And he says he would have left after, like, the first, like, you know, like, 15 minutes. Um, but he was just interested to see how the audience reacted to it and stayed and kind of watched them watch the movie. Um, and, like, the end of the review, he says, like, how did the audience respond to this? Rather quietly, I thought. The cliche, of course, would be that the audience reaction consisted of laughter, loud talking back to the screen, and whoops of glee. Well, there were a few astonished laughs, especially during the Drano scene, but the audience was a good deal quieter than you might have expected. They seemed a little stunned, maybe a little sickened. So far, there seems to be no end to the vogue for geek films, and there seems to be no limit to the inhuman imagery their makers are prepared to portray in them. Mother's Day is at least rated adults only 18 and up by its distributor, although there's no official rating from the MPAA, <clears throat> but it would have received an R, um, you know, if it had been. He says, the question is, of course, is why anybody of any age would possibly want to see this film remains without an answer, um, which I chuckled when you said that like you know where i spit on your grave you could see uh, you know like some right. people asking that question um where this one you think it does have more of like a more depth a little bit more depth to it and right but he's watching this movie in 1980 when it's being released and this is sure. when ebert still is like i don't want to say like almost a moral crusader but definitely has like a lot of prejudice against this genre of film Sure. So I don't think that he's even capable of like thinking about why would someone want to watch this because to him, there's no reason to ever watch it. So why right. even consider that? Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, Eber will pop up randomly, I'm sure, throughout this decade. Um, he didn't review all these movies, right. but um, you know, he'll pop up occasionally. Um, you know, and almost always going to be negative um, <laughs> on him. So. Uh, any last thoughts on that movie? No, I mean, okay. it just, again, if you love horror movies, you've probably already seen it. If you don't, it's a curious thing that if you have the chance to watch it, maybe you waste 80-some minutes, but maybe you don't need to. I don't know. Okay. I like it, though. Okay. Um, the one thing I do like about this list is these movies are almost all, like, 85 to 95 minutes. Yeah, um, I don't know of any film you're going to have to watch that's above an hour yeah. and a half. Well, except for the first one on this list, I think. But um, um, I think that was a little longer. Maybe. Um, so, number four on the list is Don't Go in the House, directed by Joseph Ellison, um, with a number of actors in it, but primarily I'm just going to list Dan Grimaldi, um, uh, who is the, the main star of it, and whose like primary acting credit most people would know him as, if any from anything, is Patsy Parisi um, in The Sopranos. Uh, this is one in 1980 when he's much younger. Um, it has no critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, and it has a 33% from the audience. Um, so you want to go ahead and give the premise of the movie uh, and, and what you like about it. So movie follows early 20s guy named Donnie. Um, who works at a steel mill, maybe, and is obsessed with fire from the beginning. Like, he watches a guy burn because he's so, like, fixated he can't do anything to help the guy. Um, seems like what we would probably call, like, mildly autistic, maybe, even though I would, I'm hesitant to use that because he's, like, a psychopath. Um, you find out that his mother abused him when he was a kid by burning his arms over a stove. 
Um, after his mother dies, he becomes obsessed with, like, basically, like, revisiting that pain on women that he meets because he's socially awkward and wants to revenge against his mother. Um, I mean, so basically it's just about him, like, randomly, like, picking women up and murdering them um, by chaining them into a room he's built into his house and lighting them on fire with a flamethrower. Um, which would not be a very interesting premise for a horror movie, like, typically. The thing that makes it interesting is through the movie, he does, like, a deranged style, like, deranged the movie style thing, Ed Gein style, where he then dresses the charred corpses of the women up and puts them in a room and talks to them. Um, eventually he gets discovered, um... He ends up burning to death in the house by the animated corpses of the women, like, finally coming for him. Although it seems like it's probably suicide and just, like, the stylized way of showing him killing himself through, like, his own psychosis or whatever. Sure. Um, Premise-wise, it's it's pretty standard horror affair. I mean, like, there are so many serial killer, revenge on my mother type movies in the 1980s that... I probably wouldn't like this movie so much if it wasn't for the main character being such a weird and effective performance. Um, This really unsettling combination of like mild-mannered, almost comatose and psychopathic and aggressive and the way that like he can like he just gives this, like, dead-eyed delivery sometimes, and he really feels, like, unhinged when you're watching him talk. Especially because as a viewer, like, you know all the terrible things he's done, so you watch him interact with normal people. Um, There's the scene where he goes to the disco, and the woman wants him to dance, and he's afraid to dance. And he sees her talking to some other guy because she loses interest in him because he's so boring. He just picks up a candle and, like, throws it on her and lights her on fire, and it's just so nonchalant the way it's done and the way it's filmed is just so matter of fact that like one minute he's standing there and next minute like her hair is like ablaze and she's screaming and although in that scene i think he does a pretty good job of effectively showing like the anger that's just like right burning and, inside and of the him. embarrassment that like you know i'm not good mm-hmm. enough to be with this woman and the way he talks to himself is just really it's it, it's a really creepy and really like overall effective performance um there's a dream sequence in it where he's at the beach and the corpses of these women like come out of the sand and drag him down that I think is really effective. Um, there's a couple of sequences in his house where he's talking to him, like as he like assembles his like harem basically of like corpses that I think are really effective. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a weird small movie that probably shouldn't work that I think because of just almost like the dreamy, like abstract nature of the way it's filmed and the main performance. I, I I think it works really well. And I think it's, you know, for being like a low budget movie, I think it's a pretty good, like one of the, the better looks at like fake analysis of like a psychopath, really. I mean, that was always the premise of these movies yeah. is, oh, we're showing you the twisted mind of a killer, but it's all just exploitation. And I mean, this is exploitation, you know, definitely, but like effectively done and you know like entertaining i guess to that point yeah um 
let me go ahead and read this real quick from this is from um, Tim Braden at alternateending.com. Um, he starts talking at one point about like the whispers that the main character hears in the movie, like right. from his mother and stuff. Uh, he says he starts hearing whispering voices, and apparently they tell him to go out, find girls, and kill them with a flamethrower in a giant metal room that he keeps in the basement. I say apparently because I have no damn idea what they actually say, except for a moment here, a moment there. That staticky whispering is wholly illegible. Um, which is just par for the course in a movie whose cheap and incompetent production quality sits crouching like an angry toad in the corner of every single shot. The story goes that the film had wrapped, and it was only then that the filmmakers took a look at their material. And it was now that they found that, thanks to a hideously out-of-date equipment, there was not one line of usable audio from the whole shoot. So every moment of the film had to be dubbed uh, and foleyed, and it seems that whatever post-production audio facilities they had also were out of date given the wretchedness of the sound that made it into the finished product. Add in a hateful disco score and Don't Go in the House proves to be, in the end, a film that works on exactly zero levels. It's not brutally horrific. It's not a compelling character study. Hell, it's not even interesting to look at except for maybe a scene or two. Uh, this is perhaps the finest example of anything I've watched this summer that has no merits whatsoever and would have passed into obscurity years ago, but for its enshrinement on one single list, talking about the video nasties list over in Britain. Um, so, uh, so, so okay. I, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to break that down now after I read it and ask you a couple of things. Like, one, I agree, I agree exactly what he's saying about the whispering. Like, I thought it myself while I was watching it. I didn't understand the damn thing most of the time that was being said with that whispering. Um, But I think it's unfair to criticize the movie for... Well, it's not unfair to criticize the the failure of capturing the audio correctly. But it's like, okay, I'm going to make that a watch. Okay, I don't care. really care about that. Um, I thought the disco was actually interesting to some degree. Like, you know... Just because it's, like, different, like, than what you, I think, see, like, in horror movies a lot of right. times. Like, um, so I'm going to go to the heart of this, though, at the end of, like, he says it's not brutally horrific, it's not a character study. Like, he's questioning what the hell is this movie, and, like, why is it, why should I be interested at all, and he's saying he's not. So I'm going to ask you that question. It's like, you know, what is this movie at its core, do you think? And so this, I mean... Make your best pitch if you okay. have to sell it. Is this a character study on par with, I don't know, name any like classic character study. Like, okay, we'll go back to Wild Strawberries, which is a great character okay. study. Yeah. No. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's, sure. it, it's it's a low-budget horror movie. Mm-hmm. In, that, in that world, is it a pretty good character study? Sure. Like, it builds a narrative of this guy, number one... It's a very ham-fisted, like, anti-child abuse movie. Because mm-hmm. it's basically blaming what this guy did on his abuse as a child. And then it, like, as Dakota, there's a little boy who's gotten beaten by his mother who starts to hear the same voices in his head, like, showing that, you know, if you abuse your child, like, this is how they could turn out. Now, that's a ridiculous way to do it. Like, almost as, like, an after-school special. But... Mm-hmm. It's not meant to be, like, compelling cinema, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's a low-budget, like, exploitation film. Yeah. I think the disco score works in the same way that, like, 
it's not nearly as good of a movie, but it's very similar in tone to something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, mm-hmm. where you're taking one person who exists within the world that we live in. Like, there's nothing inherently supernatural because everything that's quote-unquote supernatural is his own, like, delusions that he's seeing. Sure. So it's a person that exists in the world that we live in that you could meet on any given day doing things that normal people do that's also murdering people, which is a pretty horrific thing to think about. Like, that's terrifying, mm. I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of artistry to this movie. Like, you know, I'm not going to give you the pitch that this is, like, some kind of, like, undiscovered gem or something mm. like that. But for what it is, it's it's pretty effective. I think Considering when I watched it, and again, I hadn't seen this movie either, but when I watched it... And I start and I saw the film stock and I like saw like what they were working with kind of in terms of budget. I'll give it this. It was much more competently shot and edited, especially editing, because that's what I see like in a lot of these movies, like the editing just sucks a lot of times. Right. It's like, like scenes just ending out of nowhere sure. and, like jumps. It was much more effectively shot and edited than I would have ever imagined for that budget. Um so here's my problem with that. It movie. borders on competent. Right. Like uh, and so, I yeah maybe they fucked up the audio. I don't know, but it's like you know I I didn't I didn't read that anywhere other than here. But it, it, like this 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 fucking idiot. So when you're watching horror movies from the '80s, like the majority of what you're watching was something that was shot in Italy and then dubbed like or Spain, you know, with like foreign actors and then uh-huh. dubbed over in English like four times, right? With voices that don't even come close to matching like yeah. what's coming out of their mouths or. You know, like, inflection that doesn't right. even, like, I don't know, like, speak to the horror that's around them. Like, you know, somebody attacked by a zombie, like, oh, no. Right. I, like, this at least is, like, dubbed by, I presume, like, the actors that were in it. Or sure. Or at least, like, this guy. Sure. The main character. I'll be honest. I mean, like, not that I was, like, you know, I didn't notice any problems. If I didn't know that, I wouldn't know right. that. Right, yeah. When you start your review with something like an angry toad crouched in the corner, you can go fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. you're not reviewing that movie to review that movie. You're writing that so somebody says, like, oh, oh, what a clever line. Like, you know what? Like, you can go, like, fucking fuck himself. Yeah. I, I, I'm not defending Don't Go in the House. This like, dude has a website, man. What, right. Now he needs to get his hits. <laughs> I'm not defending Don't Go In Your House as like some classic of like horror cinema. And it's just because I saw this. This was the only movie on this list that I did not see as a child. I saw this movie as like an adult. Uh-huh. And I saw it in a, it was like a, I think Rhino or Shock released a three pack of DVDs. It was like the Don't, like series. It was like Don't Go In The House. Don't Go In The Park. Don't Answer The Phone or something. Don't, don't Go In The Basement. Maybe Don't Answer The Phone. I don't know. Uh-uh. And this was on it, and I'd never seen it before. And I watched it, and I was like, holy shit, like, this movie's actually, like, pretty entertaining. Uh-huh. And for a movie 25 years past when I was, like, predominantly watching these movies to, like, make me think. Yeah. Like, to compel me to, like, actually sit there and finish watching it. Well, most of that stuff's garbage. Yeah. Especially on those three packs, like, stuff I had never seen before. Yeah. Like, that says something. Right. And it's... It's, it's, it's a... It's a fine movie to watch for 85 minutes or whatever it is. Uh-huh. I think I think it's funny you got heated over. Don't I, I forgot the name of this movie. Don't, don't, go, in don't go in the house. Because <laughs> like you know what I hate I, I I hate motherfuckers like this that like have like some stupid blog or some stupid website and uh-huh. we're doing the same thing so like no whatever but at least we're doing like it's always like my five favorite of something right, right? like I'm not like shitting on them mm-hmm. and this guy like. 
you obviously don't That's like my job, yeah. this kind of movie. Like, don't watch it, you asshole. Like, <laughs> this isn't some, like, high-budget, like, major film release. This is yeah. something that was shown in some concrete yeah. bunker in, like, New York City on, like, yeah. choppy, like, cigarette-burned film. And, right. Just I, so happened to get released on DVD. I, I took it as like a character study to some degree. To some degree, like you, like you said, it wasn't in depth. There wasn't deep necessary, but it was a character study of like what it, what it would be like. I, I my, the most sympathy you feel is the is the guy who's trying to be a friend to the killer, right? Like that's the one I sympathize with the most. Is like he's trying to be a friend of this guy and be a bro and. Like this guy's like keeps like dodging him and like right, you know he, he got to go murder some women right he's got and and like he's still like trying to help him out and like be there for this guy like and um and this guy's like just murdering women um here's the thing is like I don't know if this was intentional like because well part of it has to be because like you said talk about the child abuse being like kind of the thing that makes right. him murder these women um I don't. And maybe this is a credit to Grimaldi as the actor in this. Like, there is a part of you that kind of feels a bad a little bit for the killer. And, like, in the sense of, like, he was created. That's what the movie's saying. He was created, right. like, in some ways, by his own mother. Um, and haunted like, by her, like, after Sure, sure. And, like, I, I wrestle with the idea a little bit of, like, is... It's I obviously it's not saying it's okay what he does. Obviously it's not saying that. But do you sympathize maybe a little too much with him given what he given the horror of what he does? Um and and I don't know if it's bad or good or what, like, but I just wonder a little bit like whether I feel a bit a little bit too bad for this like mass murder <laughs> murdering like, you know you know psychopath i mean it, it's it's very weighty issues that they're like one of my one of the one of my favorite like anecdotes or analogies or whatever an old boss of mine used to say that we had a guy that worked for us and he would say like you know we got a job and you know you come in and you're the handyman and maybe you need like a jeweler screwdriver or like a wrench to fix it but all you got in your tool belt is a hammer and you're just pounding away at it with a hammer and you're never going to fix it with a hammer if you need a screwdriver. Mm -hmm. And that's what this movie is, right? Like, it's taking right. these really weighty issues, right. and it's just beating it, like, to death with a hammer. And, you know, should you feel bad for him? I don't know. Right. Like, I don't know that... You you feel bad for him because the performance is good enough that it surprises you. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, nuance. Mm -hmm. Which you're not really used to nuance in these movies. You're used to, like, no, heavy right. breathing and right. stabbing, and, like, sure. that's it. And definitely there's ridiculous scenes of him in, like, full-body, you know, like, flame-retardant gear, like, burning things with a blowtorch, like a priest and women and whatever. I don't know. Like, yeah. it's it, it's somebody that saw Psycho and it's somebody that saw, you know, like, knew who Ed Gein was and saw Texas Chainsaw and was like, man, I want to make a movie like that but set in, like, 100% the real world. And right. this is a movie that came sure. out of it. Yeah. And it's something that's done... Dozens of times, hundreds of times, maybe over the 1980s. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, it caught me off guard when I saw this because I thought it was pretty effective the way it was done. So, fucking toad and I, I, I like asshole. I like the passion. I like that you got really defensive over that movie. I don't feel like I should, but like it, it, it annoys me. I don't know. I think there might be a little bit more of what that guy's giving, giving me credit for if I can ask that question that I just asked. So, I mean, like, there's something there. Um, 
I honestly, I can't believe he got me that angry where I like defended yeah. this movie. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If you were to like ask me, like I don't know, like a week ago, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's fine. Right. Like it's on the list because I think that it's like worth talking about, but it's not like anything great. But man, like fuck him. Okay, well let's let's try to cool down a little bit and move on to a different, slightly different like um, subgenre of this category. Right. Um, so number three on the list is Motel Hell, directed by Kevin Connor, starring Rory Calhoun, Paul Link, Nancy Parsons, Nina Axelrod. Has a seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, a forty eight percent from the audience. That's weird. Um, it is. Uh, well, Ebert didn't absolutely shit on this, so that must that tells you a little bit. I think maybe. there's a reason for that, but we'll, well get I didn't, no, there absolutely is, and you can probably guess what it is. But yeah. um, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and um, what you think about it. So, takes all kind of critters to make Farmer Vincent's fritters. Right is the premise of the movie, and it's this guy played by Rory Calhoun, Rory Calhoun. And his sister, who operate the Motel Hello, which is in some rural part of, I think, like Arkansas or something. Um, Just so you understand, if you've never seen this, it's the Motel Hello, but the but the the, the O is shorting out, shorting so out on the hell. sign, so it says Hell when it's not right. on. Yeah. Very very subtle. Right. Um, they basically waylay people to come to their hotel. They plant them in the ground like vegetables and cut their vocal cords so they can't scream and feed them so like zombies almost. And then they harvest them to turn into beef jerky, more or less. Um, he sets traps on the highway to like waylay these people. At one point he gets a biker and his girlfriend. The girlfriend survives and he takes her like under his wing, um, cares for her. They eventually fall in love, which is really weird. His brother is the town sheriff, who's an idiot, um, but is also in love with the girl. And that, like, weird love triangle. Because Rory Calhoun in this movie is, like, probably in his late 50s, early 60s. Mm -hmm. He's an old man. Yeah. Um, but this young, like, buxom, 20-some-year-old woman's in love with him because he saved her life. And he's so morally, like, upright and, I don't know, like, gallant or whatever. Um, ultimately, like, it all comes down around him. Uh, the beings they've planted in the ground like rise from the ground and attack them and they all end up dead and i don't know i mean that's basically the premise mm -hmm. um it is 100 percent a comedy like it's horror comedy it mm -hmm. is definitely a parody of a number of other like horror movies specifically texas chainsaw massacre i think like it's a big parody sure. of um many scenes of <laughs> farmer vincent wearing a comically large cow or pig's head to kill people. And I guess like his sister does too at some point. Yeah. Um, that is obviously not the actual head of a pig because it looks like right. a giant like rubber mask. Um, it kills him with a chainsaw specifically. Mm -hmm. Some really funny scenes in it. Um, it's really entertaining. Like there's a, an amazing scene in the middle of the movie where these two swinging perverts like come to the motel thinking that Rory Calhoun and his sister are like secretly down or whatever like to be perverts and they both end up getting killed um or they don't get killed they get planted I guess like neither of them actually end up dying it's a fun movie it's very briskly paced it's got a lot of really funny one-liners in it um there's just enough a sense of like menace in Farmer Vincent and his sister where it still is, like, truly a horror movie. Yeah. 
but it's a really tongue-in-cheek horror movie the entire way through. Um, requires a pretty decent amount of suspension and disbelief that like any of these things could possibly mm-hmm. occur, but it's enjoyable enough, and it's not at all, even though it takes place in like the quote-unquote real world, there's nothing that's supposed to be like real about it at all. Um, one of my favorite parts of the movie, honestly, is it's intercut with like this cheap like fundamentalist preacher like preaching on television about donating money to his church who eventually turns up like in the course of the movie like in the town itself but just this really weird like almost like surreal moments of like the camera focusing on this grainy color tv and this guy sitting on a throne with what looks like hawaii behind him like preaching about sending him money so the Lord can save you. And I just, I don't know, I, I, for whatever reason, like, I love those parts. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah. <coughs> Amazing performance by Rory Calhoun. He's really, like, he plays it so straight, even though everyone around him is kind of, like, hammy and overacting. Mm-hmm. Like, he's such the straight man in it. Um, and you well, almost he's feel... He's the real actor, too. Oh, yeah, right. Cast, you know. Yeah, you and, almost feel bad right. for him at the end when sure. he dies, because he really was just, like, he's like, well... Just wanted to get people meet. Maybe right. I went about it the wrong way. And, like, right. that's, like, his one regret is that, you know, right. he might have, like, not made the best decisions in putting people in his, um, you know, his beef jerky and whatnot. So. Right. Yeah. But a really fun movie. Yeah. Um, honestly, one of my earliest horror movie memories is getting an issue of Fangoria hmm. in, like, 1980, like, two, maybe, or something. I was, like, five. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, my parents let me buy an issue of Fangoria mm-hmm. from 7-Eleven. Yeah. And there was, like, a pictorial of this movie in it. Mm-hmm. And the image of Farmer Vincent wearing the pig's head holding a chainsaw was, mm-hmm. like, so terrifying to me. Like, yeah. I was so freaked out by that image that it actually took me a lot longer to rent this movie and watch it than it probably ever would have any other movie yeah. because I knew what movie it was and I was like sort of afraid of like seeing that because it had affected me so much as like right. a little kid. Um, and then obviously when you see it, you're like, oh my God, this is like, even as like probably like an eight or nine year old, like this is ridiculous, but mm-hmm. um, really great imagery. And like the way that Fangoria sold it, like it made it seem like terrifying. What was the box cover for this? It's a sort of an American Gothic, American Gothic style. Right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, it's Farmer Vincent and the sister, like, standing back-to-back with the motel yeah. behind them, and then, like, underlit, like, horrified faces underneath them. And yeah. just said... There was something about that when I was growing up that made me never want to watch this movie. Why? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just had, like, a bad reaction to that box cover. There's a lot of movies that use the American Gothic motif sure. of, like, the two people standing together, mm-hmm. like, one of them holding a weapon or whatever. Yeah. Um, this is one of my... Like, I I like the, the dark, like, the blacks and blues and then, like, the neonness of the Motel mm-hmm. Hell sign. And, sure. You know, the um, the painted, like, images of the faces on the bottom. It's, it's a really effective cover. Yeah. Oh, the Don't Go in the House because we didn't talk about it because uh, I never saw it as a kid. Uh-huh. But it's just, like... Two like disembodied eyes like hovering over a house, not a very good box cover. Yeah, it sounds like a bad box cover. Right, forgot about that. Yeah. They, they said we were talking about that in every movie, and I immediately forget that we're going to do right. that. Well, you got uh, toad, to, angry toad. You know, right? Got, so you, got you heated. So mad. Um, yeah, I don't know what it was about the box cover. I have no idea, but it just made me not want to watch this movie. I ended up seeing it when I was a teenager, but it's yeah. like I just didn't never want to. Well, did it. Wesley make you watch it? Is that what it yeah, was? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so. Um, 
Yeah. Like, that's the thing, is, like, I'm not, like, a huge fan of these movies, like, whatsoever, but, like, you know, there's, um, I guess there was two that I'd seen on the list of five here, and, like, as we go deeper into the 80s, there's probably gonna be a lot more that I've seen at some point in my life, um, just because of the time period that I grew up in, and because one of my friends, like, when I was younger, like, you know, was just as much into these movies as Frank was and like between him when I was younger and Frank a little bit older like I've seen like a lot of these things um even against my better judgment sometimes mm. so um <clears throat> but I, I re-watching Motel Hell I thought it was a fun comedy right I'll be honest I thought like a lot of it like I'm just like okay like you know I thought it was a little pedestrian like a lot of times like I don't think it drags I just thought like okay get, got the joke you know like moving on um, and it's just because I think I've seen so many, it's like, we're living in a, like a, a post post scream era. I don't even know what that era would be called, yeah. but it's like, it's so, everything's so meta at this point, like with horror that like to see, it's an interesting study historically, I think going back and watching this movie in the sense that like, are, is there a movie before this that like really starts getting that kind of like meta in terms of it's joking about those, like these types of movies? Like, is this one of the first? When is Saturday the 14th? Because oh, that that's, would, that's like 84. Yeah, so that would yeah. be the other movie that I would say is yeah. like in a similar vein. Yeah. Um, also, like Monster Monster Club. Um, Mon- Monster Club? Is that Monster, Monster Squad. Monster Squad. Yeah, that's like 85. I is think. another one yeah. that sort of is like that. But, you know, it's so... 86, maybe. It's a parody, obviously, of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. Um, I think it's also commentary on like consumerism. Um, it's a commentary on people... Like being like 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 almost like gentrifying or like slumming it by going out to the sure. let's go out to the country because yeah, we're gonna get yeah. this like you know even back then we're gonna get the stuff from the source and this is like my secret place where I get all my meats and stuff mm-hmm. and you know the family of obnoxious kids and the fat parents and oh my god I just got the image of Heaster like <laughs> going somewhere to go oh. get this like ultimate beef jerky and... farmer Vincent's fritters <laughs> all kinds of critters. Well, um, Love you, Houston. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of social commentary there. There's also, you know, about, like, the police officer that's an idiot and abuses his power to try and get, like, the girl. The um, the pre- preacher who's the same way, who's, mm-hmm. like, just trying to get money and, like, takes the porno magazine from the cop because he's going to destroy it. But then he's, like, flipping through it because he's so impressed with, like, the naked women. You know, it's a lot of, like, very base, like, social commentary. Sure. And you're right. Like, the joke is dragged out maybe a little too long. Yeah. Because it's a very one-note joke. Yeah. But, I mean, it makes up for it with certain scenes. Like, I, here, here's an example of being drugged out too long, actually, though. Like, even though I was going to try to defend it. Is the chainsaw fight at the end. It's this ridiculous, like, fight between, like, the, the two brothers, like, with chainsaws. Right. And, um... And... I, I think it even goes into the joke of the one chainsaw is bigger than the other. Like, it does. Yeah. And it, like, so it uses, like, that damn, like, and, and maybe, and, you know, maybe that hadn't have been done at this point. Like, you know, it's certainly in the 80s and 90s becomes this joke of, like, you know, somebody pulls out, like, a sword, you know, somebody has a knife and somebody else pulls out a sword and it becomes this, you know, tongue-in-cheek, like, you know, joke about, like, masculinity and stuff like that. But, um, 
And I think it's certainly what they're doing here. But um, and they have this chainsaw fight, and the chainsaw fight lasts for like seven minutes. It's pretty long. It's it's and and, and the thing is, it's too long. It's like the, honestly, the joke runs its course after a two minutes. Nothing know? really happens in it, and there's no. almost no stakes to it because once she's saved from like going through the meat grinder, yeah, it's just kind of boring. I agree. But so uh, I I want to bring that up real quick because it's one piece of criticism uh, that 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 I really have here and um. Ebert overall was like, basically was like fine with this movie and said that um, he wished more of these movies would like take this tact of like, you know, like having a little bit more fun and not taking it so seriously. Um, You know, because Ebert probably has already passed, you know, like he's already done with like these type of movies, it seems. So I guess at least he can take some pleasure in the idea that like, you know, it's making fun of him. But there's a guy here, um, Dustin Putman from the Bluefile.com. Uh, he uh, reviews Blu-rays, and um, his criticism here, and there might be some validity to it. Thing I think is that um, he says there's a number of fine performances, like you know, throughout the movie, but he says that the narrative never really properly focuses on any one thing, leaving you with no characters to really care about or connect to. Um, and it seemed like that was tying in a little bit, maybe like in some small way, like to what you were just saying right. about, you know, they're not being stakes in some way. There's no protagonist in this movie. Yeah. Like even, um, Terry or whatever her name is, the young blonde that he saves, she's not necessarily a good person or whatever. She's just like maybe the best out of all the like terrible people. But at the same time, I mean, it really is just trying to have fun, I think, with the conventions of the genre. And in a, in an era where you had things like Halloween, you know, and The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw and the next movie on this list we're going to talk about that are predominantly, like, serious movies. Like, it's, it's nice to have this element of, like, comedy. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, again, these aren't movies made by people who are thinking, like, I'm making this great film. You know, like, these guys aren't sitting there, like, leaning back and, like, wow, like, I'm the next, like, Hitchcock or whatever. You know, they're just, they were making, like, cheapy, low-budget, quick movies that could earn, would turn, like, 200, 300% profit on whatever they spent so that to finance whatever next movie they went into by production companies that had that same idea. And when they, when they're competent and they're fun to watch, like, it just makes it, you know, like enjoyable and I think that Motel Hell even today like is a fun movie to watch and is worth watching at least once okay so alright let's go ahead and move on to the second movie on the list which we have some low key snark from Dave Kerr coming up too. oh man thanks okay so the second movie on the list we have Friday the 13th the original Friday the 13th Directed by Sean S. Cunningham, starring Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, Harry Crosby, young Kevin Bacon. 63% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 60% from an audience. Um, I don't know how much you have to, detail you have to give here, but if you want to give the premise, basically, and then what you liked about it. So, movie opens in 1958. A um, couple of counselors are killed by point of view style by a faceless villain who are in a loft in a barn having sex. Fast forward 20 years where the camp where these counselors were killed is being reopened to the chagrin of, like, the locals. Um, group of young, like, post-teen, maybe early 20s, camp counselors are sy- systematically dispatched by a killer that you never see. 
um, till there's only one remaining who then has to confront and fight the killer um, and kills her, basically. Um, obviously, one of the most seminal movies in like the slasher genre. Um, takes a lot of things, like small things that came before in other movies, puts them all into one like package, um, sort of sets the tone, even though, again, like this stuff has happened before, of the fact like, if you're young and having sex, you're going to die. If you're young and you're like a joking, irreverent idiot, you're going to die. Um, if you're camping in the woods and it's dark, you're probably going to die. Um, pretty pretty interesting in the sense that the killer is a woman. Uh-huh. It's uh, the mother of this young boy who drowned in 1957 because two counselors were having sex when they were supposed to be watching him. Um also interesting in the sense that the the final kind of sets the precedent for the whole final girl thing, even though that has sort of been established in Halloween. But really, like, this series is really, like, what brings that into, I guess, like, a trope of the horror genre. In um, the girl who's kind of the most virtuous and the most, I don't know, like, even though, like, there's nobody that's really, like, immoral in this movie or necessarily... Later Friday the 13th, like, certainly expand upon the idea of, like, the teenage troublemaker and the wanton sexuality. And in this movie, like, there really are, like, it's... The only people that have sex are this one couple who are, like, together and it's established that they're together and are in love with each other. Which isn't necessarily, like, a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But frames it in the sense that the mother is... Becomes psychotic because of the death of her son and is trying to avenge the death of her son. Um, Really interesting use of point of view in this movie, I think. Um, which again is something that had happened before and you know we've talked about Bay of Blood and talked a little bit about Black Christmas where it's used to that effect but it's used to really good effect here Um, pretty well directed movie Um, it's Mm -hmm. at least like competent and it's sometimes it's actually pretty I wouldn't say artsy but it's got some really nice like visuals to it Um, yeah again I put in my notes I was again surprised by how competent the direction and editing was like and where I said that about don't go in the house. I said it bordered on competent. Like, you know, this was extremely competently right. done, like, in terms of just general direction and editing. And at times, like, so the scene where they're on the, like, makeshift docks that they built and the killer's looking at them from across the trees and you have, like, the shot of them from the killer's point of view and then the shot of the trees where the killer is from their point of view is really, like, really well done um when kevin bacon and his girlfriend are kind of watching the storm roll in i think that's a really effective scene the way they shoot like the darkening sky and like the the lake is the you know wind is like rushing across it it's it's actually kind of beautiful um nothing terribly inventive about the deaths here um nothing that you won't see in like a hundred horror movies or hadn't seen in like probably dozens of horror movies before this Um, but it's very, like, taut and paced well, and, you know, the, once they actually get to the camp and the killer starts, like, killing people, like, it goes pretty quick. Um, I would say that the last... Once that starts, yes, you're correct. I would say the last, like, 15 to 20 minutes maybe drags a little when, um, Pamela Voorhees is stalking Annie, I think is her name, or whatever the girl's name is, like, through the camp, and there's several times where it's just kind of silly that this old woman and this young girl are, like, fighting each other and throwing, like, bales of, like, twine at her and stuff. But still has a pretty good ending. Um, Again, 
much much more effective, I think, than the Mother's Day ending. But one of my favorite like surprise, like almost twist endings, yeah. with Jason like popping out of the water, sure. like as the deformed like rotted corpse of this boy like grabbing her and dragging yeah. her under. <clears throat> and and as ridiculous as that is, I at least think that's um, foreshadowed or discussed enough that even though it's just as ludicrous in some ways, it feels still more earned. Like, right. And the nice thing about it is there's a coda after that where she's like in the hospital bed. Right. And you're not really ever sure if it's her psychosis at sure. like going through this traumatic series right. of events that cause her just to imagine that happening. Because no one will confirm to her that like they found anybody or you know whatever. Sure. Or if it actually happened. Right. Um, an interesting note about this movie is... Cunningham had originally envisioned this movie when he filmed it, you know, and sold it to Paramount, I guess, who distributed it, that they were going to do a series of movies that took place on Friday the 13th, Mm -hmm. but weren't necessarily connected in any way other than the date. And because that ending, like, tested so well and was so well received, that that was when the decision made, like, okay, well, the sequel's going to be about, like, what happened to this kid. Um, So Friday the 13th Part 2 actually takes place five years after the events of this movie and starts with... um, I think her name's Annie, whatever the name yeah. of the main actress is, um, getting killed, like, with Pamela Voorhees' head. And that's when you get Jason introduced as the right. main antagonist. And, and a dozen sequels, yeah. Right, and increasingly ridiculous and, like, worse sequels. Although, there's going to be at least two or three other iterations in this series that show up on this list. Sure, yeah. Um, because I do really enjoy several of these oh, movies. Oh, yeah, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of movies in this series that's much better than this one. I'll be honest, watching this again, out of these five movies, this is the one I was most bored by. Really? Yeah. I, I thought it was sluggish until the action starts, and even when the action starts, it was just so typical so it's... that I, I just found, like, if if you ask me, and, and I'll say this, like, in the movie's defense, maybe... This was Jason was Jason and like Friday Thirteenth was always a series compared to things like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween that I always I did I disliked the the most or I should I say I liked the least because I actually like Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween like those series right. but I never really dug this and so maybe that influences it but I I just did not I just wasn't feeling this like as I was watching it so compared to the other movies in in the series you know this is. Very much the outlier because because the stalking is done in first person, there's almost less of a feeling of palpable dread to it yes. because it just kind of happens. And when you see the deaths occur because they're done by, it's a gloved hand, it's like heavy boots, it's just an arrow up through the guy's neck. You know what I mean? Like you don't, and a lot of the deaths you don't even see, like they're kind of done off screen. Yeah. But I sort of, I really kind of enjoy like that. Because it's so much different than the rest of, you know, the series, and it really sets the tone for the rest of the series as almost like a prequel before that idea became, like, prevalent in film. Um, I think it's really interesting. I really like a lot of the performances in it. Um, I think there's some moderately understated performances. I think there's some really small character moments that I like a lot. Like, Mm. I really like... The interaction between Enos, the truck driver, and... No, that's that's Annie. That's the girl that's going to be the cook that's, like, getting driven there. Mm -hmm. Even though it's kind of, like, it's sort of lame and she comes off as being kind of, like, a smart-ass, like, crass kid. Mm -hmm. It's kind of nice to see, like, that small level of, like, 
real human interaction between people. Um, there's a small scene later where Bill, not Bill, whatever the guy who's Steve, who's um, reinvested in Camp Crystal Lake, and he's mm-hmm. like there, like putting his money into it, and he's just at a diner, like talking to the waitress, who's this old woman that's kind of like sort of flirting with him, and it's just this small, like nothing scene that kind of humanizes people that in the later series, because it's all about like, I agree. How's Jason going to kill him in a more inventive way? Sure. They sort of go away from. So it is in a lot of ways, like it's more trying to be an actual film as opposed to just being like a series of increasingly terrible deaths. Yeah. Um, which, you know, a lot of like critical complaint, I think about horror movies in the eighties is that that's all they are is how can we get like nubile, attractive teens to take their clothes off and get slaughtered. Sure. And this really is more about, you know, building these people as characters that you might actually kind of care about a little bit. Which, again, to my point, you know, Ned, who's like the clown, which is a character that's repeated in like almost every single Friday the 13th after that. Mm. You know, the lovers, the other people that are sort of just there. They're not just like randomly having sex and, you know, it's sort of like, like they feel... As much as they can, you know, in, like, a genre film like this, they feel like real characters. And the deaths really are, like, mostly senseless. Where you're not really rooting for the killer as much as in later movies you're kind of rooting for Jason to sort of, like, dispatch these terrible, you know, like, unlikable characters. So I kind of like that. Yeah. And it's just so important in terms of what comes after it. agree with that, yes. And setting, setting, like, a lot of standards in terms of... You know, people are going to get killed in different ways. They're going to get killed with, like, common implements that you would find around. I I think part of my reaction is the idea that I've seen this done better after the fact. Yeah. And before. (laughs) Um, I mean, Friday the 13th. Halloween's better. Friday the 13th Part 2 is a better film than this movie. Sure. And does the exact same idea in a better way. Right. Um, But also steals from so many movies that came before it, like... You know, as much as you dislike Bay of Blood, there's things in, in this movie and in the sequel and in the sequels after that that steal directly from that movie in sure. terms of how the films, the deaths of characters, mm-hmm. and even, like, the ways that they die. Sure. Um, you know, but it was something that was filmed for very cheap. I think it was, like, $900,000 it cost them to film yeah. it. Um, it feels real because the camp looks like a place that would need to be renovated and you know, it's, right. it's got, like, the, the crack, the split wood inside the cabins, and they look like real, like, cabins. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I really enjoy it. I think it's really well filmed. Um, Voorhees is the hammiest performance in it, and mm-hmm. is kind of just, like, over-the-top crazy, but still kind of comes off as, like, moderately sympathetic in the sense that you can sort of understand, like, her motivation. Even though it's so ridiculous. Again, to the same way that, like, Don't Go in the House, like, is a ham-fisted look at it. This is also a ham-fisted look at, like, the loss of a child and, like, what that elicits. Right. Uh, Let me jump into the reviews real quick. I don't know how much there is to respond to, but there's a couple things I just wanted to go over real quick. So, first, I just thought that Ebert's review was kind of funny. Um... He says, talking about this movie, he says, This movie is a cross between the mad slasher and dead teenager genres. About two dozen movies a year feature a mad killer going berserk, and they're all about as bad as this one. Some have a little bit more plot, some a little less. It doesn't matter. 
Sinking into my seat in this movie theater from my childhood, I remembered the movie fantasies when I was a kid. They involved teenagers who fell in love, made out with each other, customized their cars, listened to rock and roll, and were rebels without causes. Neither the kids in this movie nor the kids watching them would have understood a worldview in which the primary function of teenagers is to be hacked to death. Then he has an asterisk at the end of it. This review will suffice for the Friday the 13th film of your choice. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's much to say to that. Like, honestly, like, other than, like, there's this, like, nostalgia for him. Of, right. I mean, there was plenty of movies when Ebert was a kid, you know, that were about teenagers in peril being attacked by Frankensteins or werewolves or whatever. I mean, it was always a trope of the horror genre that the young are gullible and easily like picked off by the killer. So I don't know. Sure. Does do things get more graphic? Like as time goes on, like sure. You know, I mean, maybe that's like a, like a systematic failing of us as a society where we need like more and more to be titillated. But I don't know. I mean, it's not like the theme changes, just the presentation. So whatever. Yeah. Um, one last thing I want to say about this movie is I think that most people who are listening to this or most people that watch horror movies have seen Friday the 13th. Um, Sean Cunningham's actually a pretty interesting guy and as a producer is responsible for like, well, number one, like one of your favorite, I think, um, series of horror movies, which is the house series. Like he Mm -hmm. produced those movies. Mm -hmm. Um, also the producer of last house on the left, um, did some other like horror movies like deep star six, which is. One of my guilty pleasure horror movies because I love, like, the underwater horror genre. Um, My Boyfriend's Back, again, like, the house movies. Um, Some of the later Friday the 13th movies he produced. Very competent director. You know, like, a guy who you feel like understands how to frame a scene. How to film something happening. You know, nothing groundbreaking or... You know, like amazingly artistic, but watchable. Mm-hmm. And he makes a movie that, you know, still to this day, when you look at the huge glut of like slasher movies from the 1980s and even like the late 70s, like this movie is still like, especially as the start of probably the most prolific. Is it the most? I guess it's the most like iterations when you look at like all the sequels I, I and reboots. So, yeah. um, the only thing that's even come close, maybe, oddly, is Hellraiser. Yeah, there's a lot of Hellraiser yeah. movies. Um, Hellraiser's an interesting franchise, and we'll... The first Hellraiser movie, I don't need... I guess it's a B-movie, but it was, like, funded by a major studio and, like, yeah. released as a major film, but it'll probably still make a list, make one of these lists yeah. at some point. Um, that's interesting, because Hellraiser, of all the, you know, series, is the one that has the most cohesive continuity, mm-hmm. because of, like... Focusing on the Cenobites and the idea of hell. Um, whereas, like, the rest of these movies, even, like, The Nightmare on Elm Street, which is probably the second in terms of, like, cohesiveness, still kind of, like, veers off in other directions. Um, sure. I mean, Friday the 13th, they're, they are what they are, you know? Yeah. And they're sometimes the best example of the slasher genre and sometimes the worst. But in my opinion, like, if you grew up in the 1980s, they were... Probably front and center if you were watching horror movies of the horror movies you watched. As a kid, it was definitely, like, one of the movies that we talked about the most. And when a new Friday the 13th would come out, it was something that, you know, on the playground or in the lunchroom, like, the next week after it came out on VHS, like, you would be cool if you would see Friday the 13th. So, I don't know. They still have a very, like, dear place to my heart, even though some of them are, like, trash. 
But I still really enjoyed this movie, and I think it's yeah. definitely worth watching. <clears throat> I'm going to end this on Dave Kerr, who I'm, mm. I, I am beginning to have a begrudging respect for in terms of like how he um, just can shit on something like in kind of humorous ways because it's so dickish. Like, yeah. um, this is probably a middling review because I'm starting to be able to understand Dave Kerr, like how he really feels about something, I think. Like, I'm becoming in tune with him. He says, this low-budget horror movie plays like a Xerox copy of Halloween with an ending cribbed from Carrie, but it became one of the 80s biggest hits. The crude technique of director Sean Cunningham bars whatever sophistication it has from Halloween's precise and elegant point-of-view shots of the killer, though Cunningham often cheats by using the ploy inconsistently. For all of its shoddiness, the film manages just barely to achieve its ignoble goals. It delivers what it promises. <clears throat> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it's I can tell like that's a two-star review. Like you know, like from the I mean, look, <laughs> John Carpenter is by far like maybe the best genre director. He's at least like top two or three, and it's difficult to compare anything to something that Carpenter did because Carpenter has so much talent when he's making these movies. But and it's it's like this is even the only like Campers in Peril movie, but it, like this series like really sets that tone and like certainly establishes itself as you know the ultimate camper Campers in Peril. Like, movie just because it goes back to it so many times. And actually falls the flattest when it takes Jason out of that environment and sends mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. like, you know, to Manhattan or to sure, space right, or wherever yeah. the fuck right. you're sending Jason. Right. But, sure. you know, when he's, like, stalking people around a campground, there's a certain mm-hmm. visceral thrill and a certain, like, mm-hmm. almost, like, weird nostalgia that comes from, like, watching that stuff. Well, it's like seeing an old friend, right. you know? And I, I just, yeah. as, the, as the genesis point of, like, that series, I really love this movie, so. And fantastic... You know, box art of like the the outline of the figure with the machete coming through, and the kids like walking through like the rainy like moonlit background. I mean, it's just yeah. it's a really I don't know the box art box art for this is really simple and effective. Yeah, like, re- you know. I don't know. I just I, yeah. I I I love this movie. I'll always love this movie. You know, I think that anyone that appreciates horror movies needs to see this movie. So. Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to the number one movie in 1980, which is Inferno. Directed by Dario Argento, starring Lee McClosky, Irene Miracle, and Sacha Pitoeff. Um, it has a 60% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 59% from the audience. Do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie, probably its history and context, and um, what you like about it? So Inferno is a direct sequel to Suspiria, um, which we covered on the 70s horror mm-hmm. movies list. Um expounds upon the idea of the three mothers so the first movie you know while it, it follows um mother uh, suspiriorum or whatever the mother's size mm-hmm. this is mother tenebrarum i think is how you say it mm-hmm. which is mother of darkness um the premise is basically of the the series in general um is that there's these three like ancient witches who are each like based in a certain city that that's their seat of power um, this one takes place in supposedly New York, although it's obviously like not New York when sure, you're watching right. it. But um, so she's like based in this, I guess, like apartment building yeah. um, where she gathers her power and like has these minions that work for her. 
Um, there's a young girl who's like, uh, I can't remember what she does. She's like a musician or something. Cause everybody in Dario Jenner's movies has like some ridiculous profession that no one in the real world has. Um, she discovers a secret room, like accidentally underneath, um, the apartment building that's flooded. Uh, m- probably my favorite scene in the movie where she Absolutely. falls in and she's kind of surrounded by these corpses start popping up and it's like you know, dimly lit, but still, like, beautiful, and, like, her floating around and trying to escape from, um, the pit. Uh, she ends up sending a letter to her brother, um, because the ancient, like, antique man next door gives her a book about the three mothers, um, which is written in English and called The Three Mothers on the Side. Right. Um, asks him to come, but he's, like, this, uh, one of the worst performances maybe in any movie ever is um the main actor in this movie uh Lee McCall's yeah terrible terrible performance um self-absorbed Agreed. he's like in class and his girlfriend gets the letter and he doesn't even bother to read it and it's actually um supposed to be uh mother um lacrim arm or whatever mm-hmm. i think is the one cuz it's in rome so it's the mother of tears that like appears to him and sort of like tries to like scare him and right. but he's too dense to be scared. He's just kind of like like confused. Mm-hmm. So then his girlfriend gets killed and her friend gets killed and he ends up like like going to New York anyway, even though he didn't read the letter. Then he gets embroiled because his sister is also killed and a bunch of other people are killed and I mean it's it's kind of like a nonsensical plot in a lot of ways and it's really interesting that Argento based it off of um Thomas De Quincey's um Profundus de Suspiria, I think is the name of it or whatever. It's like this weird like occult treatise on this idea um of these three mothers. And it's just incredibly stylistic. I mean it's it's pure Argento in the sense it's like very colorful, um a lot of really interesting set pieces that take place um, when he's like crawling through or when she, when um, the sisters like crawling through like the bowels of the apartment building. And then like later, like he like finds these secret tunnels and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's an amazing scene where the bookseller who's drowning cats in central park. Mm, yeah. Ends up getting like attacked by rats and then yeah. murdered by like the hot dog vendor or something, yeah. which is like really, and that's actually, one of my favorite that's like, my favorite kill sequence in the entire thing like is that is that one so the really interesting thing about that and one of the things i like the most and you know it, it's it happens in exorcist 3 um is the fast kill mm-hmm. where like someone like is running at someone that's sort of and it just like comes out of nowhere so when the hot dog vendor guy who's like chopping up whatever he's chopping up with his butcher knife like sees the guy getting attacked by the rats and then runs across the pond and comes over and just, like, murders him. I mean, it's it's so quick and so visceral. And, like, the idea of being, like, eaten by rats anyway is, yeah. like, really horrifying. Mm-hmm. And they show a lot of scenes of... Well-deserved, though, after the oh, yeah. killing I mean, scene. It's like, such an asshole, that guy. Yeah. Even though you're kind of, I think, supposed to be sympathetic towards him in the oh, beginning. Oh, in the beginning, yeah. Like, after that scene, though, with the cats, like, that really bothered me. Yeah. Being, like, you know, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. Maybe, like, the most earned death. Yeah. Um... Just like Suspiria, you know, it, they find, like, the seat of power of this witch, and um, she ends up getting, like, destroyed by the house catching on fire, and I don't know. But 
Argento's movies, especially his supernatural movies, they kind of lack a believable plot. But they're also beautiful and so well shot. And Argento is so talented at, like, the way he films things and the way he uses color that you kind of forgive the ridiculousness of the plot. And honestly, like, from a, like, just thematic standpoint, like, it's a really interesting idea that there's these, you know, three immortal, like, creatures that use their evil to influence, you know, the world around them from these seats of power. Um honestly like explored and in my opinion to much better effect um in the Suspiria remake from this past year um but still like I I love Argento um this is the closest thing to like artistry on this list um he definitely has the best eye of like almost any horror director in terms of like his ability to like, just see things in a way that's stylized and interesting and compelling in terms of the visuals. Um, again, like, the idea of these people existing is ridiculous. Like, nobody has a real job. Everybody does something. It's like a Contessa lives in the house and, you know, she's, whatever, like a flute player and he's a classical music, I don't know, aficionado or something that's taking classes in Rome. Right everybody's rich somehow where like they don't really need to work but i don't know i just i I really enjoy it overall i liked this it was probably like the movie that i enjoyed the most out of the five here um because it actually to me had a much more artistry obviously than a lot of these other movies like because you have a really good director like you know like at the helm at least for part of it didn't you say that um he got sick during this and well, like Ava filmed some of it, you it's, think? It's kind of apocryphal, okay. but there's people that... So, Argento and Bava, Mario Bava, were really good friends. And so Mario... Like a, Bava was like a mentor. Yeah, right? a mentor. Yeah. So, Mario Bava and his son, Lamberto Bava, who's another like pretty accomplished horror director from the 1980s, um, were there. Lamberto Limbar- L- Bava, I think, was actually like a second unit director. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's... I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but there's this idea that Argento did get sick during the filming of this and that supposedly the scene where she is underwater was filmed by Baba. Okay. Um, because he had to step in and like help Argento out to mm-hmm. make sure that it finished like on budget. Yeah, I did read that apparently like there are some things that he ended up directing like from a bed basically. Like yeah. because he was so sick. Yeah. Um whether that's true or not, I mean yeah. I I think Baba's a pretty masterful director most of the time anyway. Um I don't know what lists ever he'll show up on but he has like a few other movies that i really think of like highly on my Mm -hmm. list of favorite films um but argento certainly has other movies where he shows that he's like a talented director Mm -hmm. um another movie that will show up later uh phenomena or creepers i guess is what it's called in this country like in the vhs release um probably his most beautiful movie in terms of like artistry um that's one with jennifer connelly as yeah. the main actor, you made me it. watch that years ago. I think. made you watch it. Um, well, I asked for horror movies, and you gave. I think yeah, you gave it's one of my favorites. Yeah. But I love Inferno. I love the way it looks. I really like it thematically <clears throat> as a sequel to Suspiria. Here, here's what I thought: is I thought that like for, I thought it was much better than Suspiria in terms of plot. I thought that it was because you actually had a cohesiveness. I thought in. Despite all those, like, little things you talked about, about, like, they're all rich and none of it right. makes sense. Like, in, t- in terms of telling a story of creating a mystery and, like, kind of unfolding that mystery as the movie goes along, I thought it handled itself better than Suspiria did, which was very kind of 
abstract and like a little too stylistic and artsy sure. at times in terms of plot. I thought it actually held a much tighter plot in this that you could like easily just kind of like follow and understand what was going on. I agree. Even if it took detours. Now, I think it lost a little bit in style from Suspiria. Um, a little bit. Like, even though it's still very stylistic. Like, right. you know, I love... Basically, I thought the movie went downhill when David becomes the prime, like, protagonist Agreed. of the of the thing. Like, when it's, um, oh, uh, Rose, I think Rose, was her name. Yeah. Yep. When Rose is, like, the protagonist in the beginning of that movie, like, I was much more invested in her character than I ever was when McCloskey, like, you know, kind of takes over the rest of the movie. Um, and I think... But that, I was still interested because I understood, like, what the plot was. Like, I still invested to some degree in that plot even though I didn't, wasn't invested in his character whatsoever. So I thought I, like, lost a little bit, but, like, I love the blues. Yeah. Like, in this movie and, like, the way that's done, that underwater scene is certainly in, like, horror movies is, like, become now um, one of, like, my favorite, like, yeah, favorite it's, it's, scenes of the way it's shot. Um, oddly, Fulci's, like, um, zombie shark fight is also <laughs> right. high on that list like just the way it's filmed because it's beautiful like i mean it's it is as ridiculous as it is beautifully shot um but i mean there's like certain <laughs> that's definitely like raised up like you know like is among my upper echelon of like horror movie like scenes the way it's filmed um there's something really eerie to me and maybe that's like seeing Big Trouble with China too much when I was young with the idea of like skeletons underwater and stuff like yeah. that, like and like touching you, like you know, and stuff like that, and like her freaking out and not being able to find like you know the way to get out again, like right away. Like I, I thought all that stuff was like really tense and well done. I love the idea that there's more that's underwater, like that's unexplored and stuff, right. like that. There's that hint of that. Um, I, I thought like the beginning of this movie, the first like. 20, 30 minutes was fantastic. And then it's it really kind good. of slowly goes downhill from there. Um, but only slightly downhill. It doesn't ever, like, crash into being... No, it no, never, it never crashes. Like, it, it basically starts really great and kind of goes down into, like, kind of mediocre. Mediocre, yeah. yeah. Um, here's the thing that's, like, really bothers me about this movie, though. And I think it's, it's certainly an Argento thing. Because I started... I didn't feel it quite as bad in Suspiria, but I really felt it here is the kills are so goddamn hokey. Like, it, like, like the one with, like, there's nails in the window and the head goes down the nails and then, like, the killer, like... Oh, I love it. ...starts, that. like, you know, using the window... Right, as a like, guillotine, as a like, decapitator. Oh, my God, that's amazing. I just... Like, I actually love that kill. Yeah, I, I, I... Like, I just think... And then there's, like, the one with, like... There's, like, um... The, the, the blue curtain thing, like, do you know what I'm talking about? Where it comes, like, the... She comes through the blue curtain, like, you know, and that kind of stuff. It's like, I just find them, like, way overdone and overacted. And, like, like they're, like, I don't, the close-ups seem hokey to me of, like, making sure you get the, get the imagery yeah. of, like, that murder. And it's like, I thought, like, the, the medium shots with occasional close-ups of the rats, I thought was really effective. And it's just the way he films it. It's almost like he's, like... It's almost like an MTV video at times where it's like there's all these different angles like you know right. quickly cut of like these kills so you can get every like single shot like you know every every positioning like of like seeing this grotesque murder and it just seems um, I don't know it feels flocky to me. I mean that's just like your opinion man. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But I really love his style, except for those kills, like, just become too much. Like, in Suspiria, I like the one with, like, the, the barbed wire and stuff like that. Yeah. But he keeps it, like, kind of, like, you know, slight bird's eye medium shot so that you can actually see her struggling. And there's an occasional close-up in there, but it's like you actually can feel it. Where I think a lot of times, like, there's no feeling when you go too close up on a lot of that stuff. And especially you're cutting between different know. angles. I mean, I think the I think the guillotine scene is definitely, like, to me, it's super effective. And yeah. Ar- Argento is, for some reason, like, terrified of glass. Yes. Like, breaking glass and sure. glass going into your yeah. body is something that that man must have a huge phobia for. Yeah. Because... Some of his most memorable kills, and that happens in Suspiria, it happens mm-hmm. in Phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it happens in uh, Unsane or Tenabra. Yeah. And Deep Red maybe even too. But there's like a lot of like death by, by glass shard in his yeah. movies. And it's, I mean, it's it's pretty horrifying. Like if you think of it just from like, like the abstract of, number one, you're... <laughs> in the abstract, I agree with you. I'm saying I think that the... The way it's filmed takes me out of even being able to relate to the abstract. Yeah, I don't know that it does that for me. Okay. Like, I still find it to be really effective. I, I think I think the guillotine scene, especially with, like, when you combine it with the nails, like, mm-hmm. sticking in her, and then the person, like, it's not even just, like, one clean motion. It's, like, they come down, mm-hmm. then they have to bring it back up and come down again, and then bring it back, and then continuously. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because most times, like, so back to the movie we just talked about on Friday the 13th, you know... When Miss Voorhees gets decapitated, it's mm-hmm. this fit, small woman with one swing of a machete right. decapitates this woman. And here's this, you know, lady with like a slender, small neck that it takes like five or six tries to sever the head from the body. And it's, it's that's pretty gruesome. And, think uh, well, and it's interesting because I noted the deaths in Friday the 13th in my notes and the deaths in here. And it's really like the only two movies that I did that. And I actually like the Friday the 13th ones better to some degree, but uh, and I think I think what you said just clarified it for me. It's like it's more realistic in Argento in the sense of like, yeah, it would take multiple like, right. you know, raising and lowering of the window to do that, but the way that it's filmed creates this disconnect with the realism of the way that it's being done to me that it takes me almost out of it and it just feels like uh, it's an exhibition of stylistic technique to like view this murder where it's like, I don't feel the murder so much as I'm getting this, um, you know, uh, tutorial in how to film a murder. Like, and it it takes me out of it. So I'm, I'm okay. Like I, I kind of agree with that analysis, but not like the end result of it because I think, and mind you, I've seen thousands of horror movies. So I've seen, sure. Actors die, like, probably, like, 20,000 ways. And I, like, there's something about it becoming less about a murder and more about the aesthetic visuals of the murder, right? That I find kind of appealing. Like, I like the fact that he's so, I mean, he's, he's filmed so many people die, you know, that it's more about how can I show this in a way that's different? than it's been shown before. Mm-hmm. How can I do this in a way where I'm more like painting a picture of this act rather than, you know, because there's, I mean, to a fault, like he's always going to be like probably overly artistic mm-hmm. and artistic is a very kind way, mm-hmm. you know, to say like pretentious or mm-hmm. artsy or mm-hmm. even like high minded about these things. But in a sea of like movies where, 
And this is the time, you know, when you look at the number of movies released from like 1977, say, to like 1985 that involve like horror as the genre, it's hundreds, right? Mm-hmm. And to have someone who's willing to like take that chance and do something different with it, like even if maybe it's not quite as viscerally effective as like, I mean, look at something like you brought up Zombie, right? By Fulci. Yeah. One of the most effective scenes in any horror movie is the zombie pulling the woman's eye yes. into the shard the, of the splinter, like, wood, splinter. Right, yeah, yeah. which is Agreed. grotesque yes. and is almost overly, overwhelmingly horrifying, yes. especially the first time you see it. Yes. Like that tension of that eye coming up to that mm-hmm. splinter, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's, it's almost like palpable tension. Yeah, especially for me who has almost like some kind of eye damage phobia. Right, like it, it's it, yeah, it's horrifying. But yeah. it's so visceral that it's almost like not entertaining to watch. It's the, almost the opposite of entertainment. It's mm-hmm. like almost torturous to watch. Sure. Whereas with Argento, it's always entertaining, right? Like yeah. even if it's not quite as effective as a kill, like I think it's so beautifully shot that it becomes more than just about watching someone get murdered. Right. Yeah. And to a fault. Like again, like yeah. I think that Argento can be a little like overwrought. I think he's maybe a little too in love with you know, again, multiple angles, you're right. Like he cuts yeah. probably a little too much. He probably extends the scene a little too much. I mean it definitely takes But forever. he only does it during the kills, and that's right. my, and that's my problem. Like But that's his thing is yeah. like the reason that you know, we're we're grown people watching mm-hmm. these movies. And when I watch this movie you know, in 1993 or 94, whenever I saw Inferno, um, I don't know, like, there's something about it where it just, like, no, you're watching the movies to watch someone get murdered, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't watch a slasher movie for the plot, you know, you're not watching it for the performance, you're watching it to see what inventive ways can this Mm -hmm. director find to kill these people. Which is maybe, like, a terrible thing to do in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So, when you see it done in a different way, like, I was amazed watching Argento as a teenager. And I would have told you, if you would have asked me in, like, 1996 or 7 to list my favorite directors, I would have told you Dario Argento was on that list of favorite directors. Mm -hmm. In the interim, you know, he's dropped considerably. But I still find him to be one of the most compelling directors to watch in terms of, like, the horror genre. Mm -hmm. And definitely somebody who who doesn't view it as quickie exploitation, like, let's make a buck. Like, Argento truly seems like he feels like he's making art when he makes these movies. And somebody that is so invested in the genre, but is trying to elevate it into something greater than what most people look at it as, I mean, I think that's important. And that's where I think I have the problem with it, is that the deaths seem like they're exploitive to me. Even if it's artistic, it still feels when when he doesn't is not exploitative at any other point in the film, like in making it. But it feels like the deaths are right, and maybe that's because that's what people want, and maybe that's yeah, right. I, mean, I appreciate gonna... the defense of it. I just think that it's like you know your favorite you know horror movie, and certainly like in my top couple, Texas Chainsaw. It's like you know when Leatherface like you know hits that guy in the head, like, you know, and then, like, drags him in and slams that door. It's like, I feel that in my gut. Right. Like, and it's like, that's, in a horror movie, that's what I'm looking for, is I'm looking to feel it in my gut. The other week when we were talking about westerns and we talked about um, Bone Tomahawk. Right. 
you know, like, that kind of stuff hit me in my gut. Like, it made me almost nauseous. Like, it felt like I didn't have anything on my stomach. Like, when I watched a couple of those scenes, that's what I'm looking for in a horror movie. And Argento, the way he films those deaths, I'll never feel that because of, like, the way that it's so stylized. You know what? I mean, I think that's true, and I think that's yeah. fine. And again, sure. like, I would argue that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a transcendent film that becomes so much more than just a horror movie where Argento's films are very expertly shot artistic horror movies. Like there's nothing transcendent about for as much like metaphysical nonsense as Argento puts in like his supernatural Mm -hmm. horror movies and as much like style and care as he puts into filming like his non supernatural, like the serial killer movies Mm -hmm. They really are, like, at their heart, they're just horror movies. They're sure. just really well-done horror movies. But things like The Exorcist and Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Bone Tomahawk, you know, mm-hmm. to your point just now, they transcend being part of the horror genre by being, like, more than just... And may- maybe then, to some degree, it's a frustration with Argento where I think that he could be more transcendent than what he is. Maybe. And it's like, there's things like that underwater sequence in the beginning that have a feel of claustrophobia and this stylistic atmosphere without feeling like it's just unfairly just placed on the scene and so beautifully filmed. It feels like if that guy can do that, he should be somebody who can transcend the genre a little bit more than just being a horror movie and he never really gets there. I think with Suspiria, even though I really like that movie, like in a lot of ways, and this movie even, I like this movie. I just feel he never gets there when maybe it's a frustration for me, in me, for the filmmaker, that he never gets to the point where I think he could get. Right. So we, and you're probably right about that. I don't know that he ever tries. Like, yeah. his, in my opinion, his best movie, and a lot of people would argue that Deep Red is his best movie, but to me... His the finest example of Argento as a filmmaker is Phenomena. I think it's his best movie in terms of the visuals, the audio, stylistically, the plot. Like I, I uh, that movie to me is like a masterpiece in terms of like him, right? But it never he doesn't ever want to make it about anything than the plot and you know getting through the kills to get to the end. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, like, I, I don't know, I've always had the argument that for a long time I used to rail against, like, popcorn movies and say that, like, I don't know how you can turn off your brain to watch a movie, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how can you overlook the failings of something just to say, like, well, I was entertained, but I always, like, sort of have that, like, soft spot in my heart for horror where Mm -hmm. I think... You can just like enjoy it for what it is, sure. and I'm and I, and I feel I, and that's but I'm saying I think I feel the same way, like in the sense that like I want to feel it, right? I want to feel the horror, and like with his kills, only his kills, I don't feel it, like you know, like and that could just be me, and it's just a difference of opinion. That's and fine. it's interesting like, because like we <clears throat> we had a similar, maybe not quite the same, but a similar conversation about Liquid Sky. And I think it's, to me, it's the same idea. Like, a movie can be pretty to me and interesting to look at, and, like, that's enough. Like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to, 
like I'm okay with it not ticking the other boxes that make something like a classic to me. Sure. Where I can still enjoy it just because like I love to look at it. And I I think Argento has made some incredibly terrible movies in his career, but I will always be interested in the way that he films them. And sure. I love his use of color, I love his Absolutely. use of like framing. I like the fact that he's he's got this like amazing eye for architecture and art Agreed. and setting. Yeah. And I I don't know, like there's so many times and you said it yourself, like a machete to the face is always just a machete to the face, and no matter how you film it, you know, it's just kinda like like I've seen that like a sure. thousand times. But I can't tell you like, maybe, like, a couple times where someone's, like, used a window to decapitate a person. Sure. Like, I don't know. Like, I just... Right. I don't know. And it might be, like I said, it might be more interesting if it were filmed differently to me. You know? Like, um... But, yeah. So, okay. Any final thoughts on this? Um, I think it's really unfortunate, and we'll never talk about this movie on any list because it's awful. Yeah. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that Mother of Tears is so bad mm. um, because... A legitimately that was like 2006 2007 2007 okay um a legitimate follow-up to these two movies would have been really welcome and really good um i really again i think the idea of like the trio of mothers mm-hmm. um is fantastic yeah um it's an interesting concept and i think that he like in this movie that's probably the best part is the mythology of that and the fact that you know people are willing to kill to keep anyone from finding out the truth about them. Um, I don't know. You know, it's it's definitely the most technically adept movie on this list. Um, I think it's definitely worth watching if you enjoy horror movies. Um, I would just imagine that most people that are fans, like true fans of like horror that like really like invest in watching it are familiar with Argento and know like his works. Um, I kind of feel like Inferno is one of, like, the lesser-known works of his because I think that, like, other movies sort of, like, take center stage. Um, for most people, it's probably Suspiria, Deep Red, and Two Evil Eyes, like, Argento's portion of that that they've seen. Um, but Inferno is definitely worth checking out. I think it's it's free somewhere, right? Like, on Tubi now or something, maybe? What, what is it? Or Infer- Inferno? Inferno, I think I... It's on uh, Prime. Is it on Prime? Yeah, it's free. If you subscribe to Prime, it's free. Yeah, so worth watching for... <clears throat> Whatever the two hours and six minutes or whatever that it runs. Yeah, everything else that's on this list, um, you still have to uh, rent for right now. Um, but um, Inferno is uh, on Prime for if you subscribe to Prime, it's free. Friday the Thirteenth is on Showtime if you have it. If you have Showtime, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I I'm really excited to do these list of movies. Like, there's a lot of movies I'm really looking yeah. forward to talk about. Um, this might be. This and maybe like 86 or somewhere mm. around there are like the weakest mm. years. But there's some amazing years coming up where it's really difficult for me to even like parse it to five movies. Is, so. eight, is 86 the year that Night of the Creeps is going to sneak in because it's so weak? I like Night of the Creeps. Oh, okay. I mean, I know that I made that claim to you that like was a really weak year. No, it wasn't. It was, um, it was Fright Night. It wasn't Night of the Creeps. I love Night of the Creeps. It, oh, okay. was, it was Fright Night that I told you could sneak in. Oh, okay. Because yeah. that's a weak year. Maybe right. it's 85. Okay. Whatever your yeah. Fright Night is. Like, Fright Night is, like, number five. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, I want to talk about Fright Night. <laughs> okay. So, um, that's the list for this week. Um, like I said earlier in the show, please remember, if you want to contact us whatsoever, you can 
hit us up on Facebook, um, on our Facebook page. You can also email us at twoguys5movies, uh, gmail.com. Um, for the month of February, we will be moving from um, 1980B horror movies into next week. Um, on the 1st, we will be doing um, uh, the incongruous genre of um, top five romantic comedies of all time. And Maybe my favorite list out of all the ones we've done. It's, which is, it's, 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 it's different. It's different than a lot of the lists we've done before. Um, not only for genre, but like, you know, it spans uh, a, a large time period and stuff like that. So we're going to be talking about movies from a lot of different decades. Um, and then on the 8th, we will be continuing our 10-month series of top five Bihar movies. Um, so we'll be coming 81 um, on February 8th. Taking a break on the 15th, and then on the 22nd, uh, we will have our friend Aiden Boyer here for a third man series where we'll be talking about what Aiden and Frank think are the best Spike Lee movie. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really interested in that too. Um, and um, I'm going to try to like low-key sneak in and um, talk about my favorite Spike Lee movie too, um, because I think I disagree with both of you. Hmm. Um, so... Uh, that's what we have planned for the month of February. Um, thank everybody for uh, listening tonight. Um, yep, I appreciate it. Um, and um, everybody have a good weekend. Yep, have a good night.